The key feature of this era is the liberation of human consciousness from false thought forms into heart-centered awareness. Instead of giving our power to institutions like king and court, or church and state, or I might add corporation, instead of draining our life force into the world machine, we're heading toward the flourishing of human potential on a mass scale and the awakening of mainstream consciousness. The revolution that surged through the 60s when we first began to hear of the age of Aquarius is moving again in an updated form, with most of the rough-edged hysteria of that earlier time trimmed off. The new revolution is less based on a primal urge to rebel and more based on the need to see we're all in it together. It's less us versus them and more about the whole human organism taking a giant step forward. Hello and welcome to the season one finale of Hail Saturn. Thank you for joining me yet again. Today, I hope to zoom out a bit and maybe revisit some topics from earlier episodes and connect them to some of the things that we've discussed more recently. But first, I want to read kind of a lengthy passage from Richard Tarnas's book, Cosmos and Psyche, because I think it gives a really eloquent description of how astrology has and does serve humanity. This is like a legendary book that connects astrological cycles to history as we know it in just really mind-blowing ways. So I can't recommend this book enough. If you're interested in mundane astrology, which is the branch of astrology which deals with human history, major world events, wars, leaders being elected or kings being crowned, plagues, natural disasters, threats to humanity, gifts to humanity, technological advancements, all of that falls into the branch mundane astrology, pretty oddly named because it's pretty interesting and far from mundane. But a great starting point if you're a reader is Cosmos and Psyche by Richard Tarnas. So I'm going to read from chapter 6, which is the chapter on creativity and expansion, two of our favorite themes over here. So the chapter starts with a Nietzsche quote, There are a thousand paths that have never yet been trodden. Humanity and humanity's earth are still unexhausted and undiscovered. Watch and listen, you solitaries. From the future come winds with a stealthy flapping of wings, and good tidings go out to delicate ears. Historians and psychologists have long wrestled with the mysterious phenomenon of individuals and societies becoming swept up into particular ways of perceiving their reality and acting on the basis of those highly charged perceptions. The evidence we have been examining suggests that at certain times the constellation of a powerful archetypal complex can so dominate and inform every dimension of experience, both internally and externally, that the individual or society thus affected sees the world entirely through its compelling lens and acts accordingly. It is as if at different times of life or history, one has entered into a different imaginative and emotional universe with its own distinct parameters, assumptions, and ambiance. The contrast between the two periods can be as vivid as that between, say, Macbeth and Much Ado About Nothing, or between the seventh seal and the sound of music. As James Hillman well described, one thing is absolutely essential to the notion of archetypes. 
their emotional possessive effect, their bedazzlement of consciousness so that it becomes blind to its own stance, by setting up a universe which tends to hold everything we do see and say in sway of its cosmos, an archetype is best comparable with a god. Indeed, the very image of God and the divine as experienced and articulated by different individuals and in different eras appear to be profoundly affected by the archetypal complexes that are then most constellated and active, whether in religion or art, in personal biography, or the great events and epochs of history. It is this archetypal dimension of experience that gives life its depth of meaning and informs the shifting contours of its unfolding drama. Yet it is precisely this subtle power to shape and reinforce our conscious perceptions and beliefs that holds such danger. This power is not, however, simply a matter of inner distortions and perceptual filters by which different archetypal gestalts merely produce different inner states of being. The drastic difference in spirit and vision between Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest and his De Profundis three years later was not caused simply by an inner shift, a change of mood, nor was the difference in American attitudes towards national security issues before and after September 11, 2001. Decisive outer events took place that set in motion the archetypal complex, yet even where the causal factors are not so self-evident, external events and interior attitudes tend to mirror each other. This mirroring of inner and outer, observed repeatedly by all of us in the course of life, seems to reflect their underlying coherence as two mutually implicated manifestations of a larger reality. The world in some sense conspires with our inner states, and vice versa. Fate plays a hand, with the occurrence of precisely appropriate synchronistic phenomena both affecting and reflecting the state of consciousness. One is seldom imagining things. That is the great ambiguity that pervades so many of the phenomena we are examining. Archetypally informed perceptions of the world can be simultaneously realistic and yet highly partial, biased, and self-fulfilling in such a way as to render one increasingly blind to other realities and potentialities. These perceptions lead to assumptions and convictions that subtly move us to act one way rather than another and elicit further confirmation of the initial perception, further reinforcement of the initial event. Soon, in a complexly dynamic interaction with the environment, one has established an enduring structure of reality that is strongly determinative for the future, such as a state of war against terror that is fought by terror, a perpetual cycle of violence and repression, bombings and retribution, fear and hostility, or as during the Cold War, a state of global nuclear peril in an ever-worsening Manichaean schism, driven by mutual demonization and worldwide hostile activity, or in religion, a state of metaphysical fear and judgment, sin and guilt, heretics and inquisitions, expectations of apocalypse, eternal damnation, the soul's predestined fate in the hands of an angry god, the world sharply divided between the born again and the unredeemed, between good and evil, with all the social and psychological consequences of such beliefs, or even in science, a state of empirically validated cosmic disenchantment, with the genetically programmed human being existentially isolated in a meaningless, purposeless universe, the inexplicably solitary locus of intelligence, an idiosyncratic spiritual aspiration, and a vast cosmos of random processes signifying nothing. Thus, the arising in us of an archetypal complex can serve as a window to the universe, indeed a door and a pathway, but it can also serve as an enclosing wall, 
an impermeable boundary and barrier that effectively creates a limit to our universe of possibilities. Only a critical awareness of that potential boundary and an act of the imagination to transcend it can open the horizon of our universe. I have found that such an awareness is mediated most effectively by a recognition of the dominant archetypal complexes and dynamics of a given time, whether for an individual or an entire civilization, and that this recognition is extraordinarily enhanced by a knowledge of what planets are in alignment at what time and for how long an informed understanding of which can provide a crucial, irreplaceable perspective on the shifting archetypal dynamics of life. In this sense, even when the correlations observed involve the gravest and darkest matters, the archetypal astrological perspective points to the possibility of an unexpected liberation from certain otherwise implacably confining conditions. This emancipatory potential has three different interrelated elements. First, by providing nuanced, clarifying insight into which archetypal complexes are likely to be constellated in an individual or society as well as when such a perspective can open up a new potential for critical reflection and self-awareness, a new possibility of transcending one's unconscious immersion in the moment, and thus a crucial degree of autonomy in relation to the powerful forces at work in the individual and collective psyche. Secondly, such ongoing insight provides one with an edifying sense of the relativity of every state of being in which one finds oneself, whether a state of mind, a stage of life, or an historical epoch. This too shall pass, both the grievous and the glorious. And however persuasive the current archetypal gestalt appears to be, it is not the whole story. Finally, apart from the particulars of the planetary and archetypal patterning, the very recognition that such correlations exist at all, and that they continue to exist with such extraordinary consistency and elegant complexity, can nurture a profound awareness of the human condition as one of embeddedness and creative participation in a living cosmos of unfolding meaning and purpose. Sorry to read such a long excerpt, but I really loved the way that Tarnas described the functioning of astrology and how it describes what's already happening around us and gives us the insight that we need to have self-awareness and to gain more control over our own autonomy within this kind of cosmic soup that we find ourselves in. And speaking of that cosmic soup, which is very Pisces, Thinking about how we usually consider ourselves to be individuals with very finite boundaries, right? The boundary of your physical body. And in fact, Saturn rules the skin and bones. Saturn rules Aquarius too. Aquarius is one of the human signs, the water bearer. It takes a human form and it deals with the finite boundaries that we deal with as humans during our lifetime on Earth. And we're going to get into this, but there is a movement from this kind of Pisces way of being into an Aquarian way of being. And the two energies are sort of seesawing, teetering back and forth, kind of vying for the upper hand as Pisces passes the baton to Aquarius. It is time for us to embrace our individuality and honor that and participate in life as unique individuals with unique callings, but we can't forget where we come from and the cosmic thread that connects us all. Above this realm where we have bodies and where 
separated from one another in this extreme way, there is a plane where we're all connected and we all draw from that in our own ways each and every day as creative human beings. And I'll keep saying it and I don't care if you're somebody who doesn't think that you're creative, doesn't consider yourself a creative person. I think that all human beings inherently possess the power to create and manifest on earth and that there's this vast realm of inspiration and divine guidance that's ready and waiting for each of us to come access it. And by meeting that realm from the vantage point of our own unique individual selves, we can draw forth a vast constellation of ideas and manifest them into our reality. And I just... I'm sure that there's a bigger picture that we can't see, but that each one of us has a specific role in bringing to fruition. And I don't think it's just unique to our time period. I honestly don't think we're special. I think this is the nature of life, and this is how every generation has always lived. We're always co-creating the next moment with one another, and we're all subject to the same or the same combinations of energies and forces that are exerting themselves on us and limiting us or creating avenues for us that, to open up possibilities for us to create and experience. And of course, it's different depending on where you are on the globe and what your actual physical location is and who you are. And astrology covers all of that and organizes it in a way where we can put language to it and communicate about it. And I think that's amazing. So I hope that this passage gave you some kind of edification or better idea of how this complicated cosmic technology interplays with our little mundane lives here on Earth. It's endless, really endless though, because every little component, every individual person, every event that takes place, every day, every minute that passes by has a chart that can be analyzed, and that chart has a permutative amount of information in it. The deeper you go, the more you will find with every single chart. And then of course we have reality to consider. Right? The chart doesn't exist in a vacuum. We overlay it onto reality and we try to connect it to what are we actually seeing here in the physical plane? What are we sensing? What's actually around? You know, he gives the example of 9-11, but I keep thinking about the era with the Salem witch trials and that kind of archetypal energy surrounding those kinds of forces exerting themselves on people making them burn each other you know and like that's one extreme example but I can definitely think of like a hundred modern parallels to that I won't go into them now because it's not the right time for that but we are actually all of us quite sensitive to our environment and to these invisible forces that exert themselves on us. And some not so invisible, right? Some have pretty clearly manifested as figures of authority and power, and such powerful authoritative figures with such a huge influence over us that it sometimes feels oppressive and impossible to lift and break free of. But astrology tells us that this is the moment where things start to change. We are in a different Pluto power paradigm. And more than that, we are advancing forward 
our universe is always advancing forward and we are advancing forward toward Aquarius energy. This is not the permanent state of the universe. Nothing in the universe is permanent, but for the moment that we're living in, the direction, the forward motion is toward Aquarius energy, away from Capricorn and away from Pisces, the two signs on either side of Aquarius. Different astrological cycles and movements point from both directions toward Aquarius. And what is Aquarius? Well, Aquarius is humankind. It's the people. It's society. It's humanitarian efforts. It's visions and goals for manifesting a future that serves human beings, that is pro-social and supports human life flourishing on Earth. We need to organize and create structures to do exactly that. And it's clear to me and I think to anyone listening to this podcast that we have not organized our society in a way that really serves that aim. We have organized our society in a pretty advanced and impressive way, I won't lie, but is it in service of humankind and what the human experience is at its most essential core meant to be about? No, absolutely not. It actually moves us away from that and in many cases prevents people from even accessing what that is and makes it like a ghost in their mind and body, something that they're inherently aware of and kind of have an urge and an itch to access and to make friends with and start using like a muscle that's atrophied almost, you know, like that a body part that you have, but that you can't utilize. And I feel like for a lot of people, they have that feeling. And then they just they numb it out with all of the trappings of our consumer culture, you know, with addiction or with television or takeout food or whatever, you know, your comfort vice is, we all have them. I'm not mad at anybody, you know? We have created this society. I don't know whose idea it was. I think it really predates all of us. But I think that if we really are honest with ourselves, we can start to recognize how the way that we have things set up and what we're prioritizing and what we're valuing right now doesn't actually serve us. It just serves our comfort zones. And when we're so relaxed and disassociated, in our comfort zones. We're docile and it's easy to manipulate us and it's just pretty far away from the image of what human life is supposed to be. We're not supposed to be atomized in our separate homes or apartments, streaming television that's mass produced, ordering delivery service and going to our job or two jobs to keep that going for our whole lives. The idea that we participate in life by going to work five days a week, nights and weekends off to kick your shoes off, sit on the couch and watch TV and order takeout, play a video game. It's just not what life's about. I don't know who decided that, I think it works really well for capitalism and it worked really well in the Capricorn paradigm to have all of these trappings of wealth and comfort and stability and have them be almost ubiquitous and available to the masses. And you know, maybe that would be where it ended, right? Like maybe 
that could be okay if we really all were able to have a little box and a TV and a Grubhub app on our smartphone. But in fact, that's not the situation. And as many of us have settled into that kind of a routine, we also see issues like homelessness absolutely exploding in a visible way and in an invisible way. And I feel that we're at a breaking point and I see in the astrology that it is time for a complete overhaul as to what kind of society we support to govern us and to provide the framework for our lives on earth. Is this all there is? Is this really all there is? I don't know. I don't think it's about working for comfort and, you know, seeing anyone who doesn't get with the program paying the consequences like that just doesn't feel right and it definitely doesn't fit with Aquarius energy Capricorn perhaps but definitely not Aquarius Aquarius is about innovating and coming up with a way to move past the status quo and arrive in the future where we're a little bit closer to utopia no matter how deep you go in your exploration or experimentation with astrology, if the only thing you get out of it is just that sense that Richard Tarnas described as an awareness of the human condition as one of embeddedness and creative participation in a living cosmos of unfolding meaning and purpose, that's enough. I really think that that's enough if you take one thing away from astrology as a whole. If you take that away and you really go forth and live your life, thinking of yourself as being embedded in a cosmic tapestry that includes every other soul on this earth, and you think of each day that you have here as one with an opportunity to creatively participate in this living cosmos as a living being and allow the meaning and purpose to unfold. I think that's beautiful and I think that could change someone's life. But I will continue reading from this amazing book, Cosmos and Psyche, because in chapter 8, Richard Tarnas talks about Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, and a few points in those planets' cycles with one another that have significance and relevance to the Uranus-Neptune conjunction that we talk about so much over here. And... He sheds more light on that and gives some relevant historical context to the type of work and change and evolution and revolutions that this Uranus and Neptune generation that is poised on the precipice of action is meant to manifest. And I do feel like this current moment that we're in is about partnering and learning to collaborate with the evolving technology and with AI in particular, but also with this new phase of the internet and as AI changes the internet, I think that the movement to put our lives online and to participate in life online and connect with people online and individuate and do our own thing using AI and the internet and these new technologies that are available to the generations alive right now I do think that that's a huge part of this motion forward into Aquarius energy because Aquarius does rule the internet, Aquarius does rule society, it does rule technology. So it's about how are we going to help our society evolve into this new moment, you know? We can't just 
leave everybody behind who can't get with the program or who isn't capable of innovating as fast as things are changing. So a lot is going to need to be reorganized. The finite nature of many resources will have to be addressed, but also what will need to be addressed is the potential resources that are opening up and these vast new potentials for work, for creativity, for manifesting, for communicating, for building, for researching, for diagnosing, for learning. There's so much to be excited about, and there's so much that we're just on the cusp of and at the dawn of, and it's just a really crazy moment in time. So I'm really grateful that we can talk about it and that we're all here together and that we all have access to this common universal space that we can return to, to kind of cleanse and clarify and sharpen our vision. I think what connects us and what we have in common is what we need to build upon and what divides us and what causes us to demonize one another, to separate and refuse to collaborate and work together that needs to be smoothed out and smoothed over because there is something larger that we're all helping to build. And the more that we're at odds with one another, the longer that will take and the less effective a job will do. It's definitely not all promised. It's not a given. And there's a lot of potential for failure, for evil, for all kinds of horrible outcomes. I'm not blind to those types of potentialities in AI and in all of the kind of developments that I'm considering. But as I always say, I believe in the power of applying positive thinking to a problem and working from a solutions-oriented mindset and being really pure with your intention and trying to act from a place of honor and yeah, just really trying to make friends with your own inner integrity and then try to stay with that as much as possible throughout the day, week, and beyond. We all get shaken, we all get thrown by these forces that we're living under, but with every challenge comes an opportunity to rise, and that's true on the microcosm and the macrocosm. We all have a role in bringing about the innovative dream of the future and I feel us hovering on the edge of it but we have to tune in to the universal frequency that connects us and we have to embrace the inevitability and constants of change we have to learn to flow with the current and become the current and apply our force of our beings in the direction that we're trying to go. No more fighting the current. No more getting knocked down, letting it wash over you. Maybe staying down, or maybe getting back up and fighting some more. We're gonna turn around. We're gonna float to the top, to the highest vibration that we can reach, and we're just gonna let go. And then after we ride for a while and we get a sense of what the flow is like, we're going to start swimming. Whatever stroke feels the most organic and the most reflective of who you are in your soul. Follow your intuition and it will lead you where you need to go. And if you need a little extra guidance, look to your birth chart. It's all there.
So from chapter 8 of Cosmos and Psyche, towards a new heaven and a new earth, it begins with two quotes, one from Carl Jung, a mood of universal destruction and renewal has set its mark on our age. This mood makes itself felt everywhere, politically, socially, and philosophically. We are living in what the Greeks called the kairos, the right moment, for a metamorphosis of the gods, of the fundamental principles and symbols. This peculiarity of our time, which is certainly not of our conscious choosing, is the expression of the unconscious human within us who is changing. Coming generations will have to take account of this momentous transformation if humanity is not to destroy itself through the might of its own technology and science. So much is at stake, and so much depends on the psychological constitution of the modern human. And then, kind of interestingly, Tarnas includes a quote from Václav Havel's The Spiritual Roots of Democracy. For those who don't know, Václav Havel was the first democratically elected president of the Czech Republic after they overthrew the Communist Party during the Velvet Revolution in 1989. Planetary democracy does not yet exist, but our global civilization is already preparing a place for it. It is the very earth we inhabit linked with heaven above us. Only in this setting can the mutuality and the commonality of the human race be newly created, with reverence and gratitude for that which transcends each of us singly and all of us together. The authority of a world democratic order simply cannot be built on anything else but the revitalized authority of the universe. Such an interesting quote. To approach the issue of future planetary alignments in the light of the evidence we have examined so far, we must clearly grasp the limitations of the present study. Okay, he's just talking here about how he only looked at a few hard, so challenging oppositions and squares, hard alignments of a few different planetary combinations, such as Saturn-Uranus and Neptune-Pluto, but didn't encompass all of the complex nuances of all of the different planetary alignments happening overlaid. Astrology is really complicated and even the world's foremost experts have to pick and choose and look at things on an individual basis and start from square one and combine things. So don't be afraid to just focus on one thing at a time when it comes to analyzing astrology. You'll get something out of that. You don't need to see everything at once in order to receive wisdom and perspective from this tool. An especially notable planetary alignment in Western cultural history, one that involved the trine aspect, was the rare grand trine configuration of Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto that took place approximately between 1765 and 1777, when the three outermost planets moved into an equilateral triangle, each being positioned at an angular relationship of 120 degrees with the other two. Grand trines between any three planets characteristically coincide with a particularly pronounced harmonious mutual activation and interpenetration of the three archetypal principles involved. Such a grand trine of the three outermost planets occurred only once in the modern era. The period of that alignment coincided with the very height of the Enlightenment, 
and also with the beginning of the American Revolution led by Jefferson, Adams, Washington, Franklin, and others as a self-conscious expression of Enlightenment ideals and principles. Here too we can recognize the archetypal background of the distinctive numinosity, a sense of providential blessing and divinely ordained destiny that has historically been attached to those founding events and figures. This numinosity and spiritual idealism, Neptune, was in turn radically interwoven with the impulse towards liberty and revolution, Uranus-Pluto, a complex of themes powerfully articulated later by Lincoln, and often more problematically and exploitatively by others. The same period of the Grand Trine of the later 1760s and 1770s also coincided with the great birth of Romanticism in Germany that introduced that seminal and profound cultural impulse into the European mind. There emerged a new conception of nature, spirit, and history, and of language, art, intellect, and feeling, interiority and imagination, sensuality and spirituality, humanity and divinity that would dramatically bear fruit, as we have seen, during the immediately following Uranus-Pluto and Uranus-Neptune axial alignments from the 1790s through the 1820s, and indeed beyond those periods to the most recent such alignments of the 1960s and 1990s. In addition, virtually the entire central generation of Romantics was born during the decade of this grand trine. The powerful confluence of brilliant creativity and the urge for freedom and change, Uranus, of imagination, spiritual aspiration, and charismatic idealism, Neptune, and of nature, evolution, instinct, and Eros, Pluto, that began to enter into the world at this time, and was then given artistic and philosophical form by the generation born during this period, corresponds exactly to the character of a grand trine involving these planets and archetypal principles. I keep trying to find just one passage in Cosmos and Psyche which distills the Uranus-Neptune complex and gives a clear reading of what that has meant historically and what we can expect from the generation that is embodying that energy of that conjunction today. And it's just really widespread throughout the book. I'm going to read more from Cosmos and Psyche, now from chapter 7. He says, Our final example of the Uranus-Neptune cycle is the most recent conjunction, which was within 15 degrees of exact alignment from 1985 to 2001. So he's using a bigger orb than I usually do here, but let's go with it and let's call that Uranus-Neptune conjunction from 1985 to 2001. Looking back over this extraordinary period of the late 20th century and the turn of the millennium, we can recognize that virtually every one of the major categories evident in past Uranus-Neptune eras played a dominant role in the life of the world community during this most recent alignment. The widespread spiritual renewal of the age, the astonishing multiplicity of spiritual paths and traditions from many cultures and eras disseminating and merging throughout the world, the burgeoning of religious movements in Latin America, Africa, Russia, and East Asia, the Islamic revival in the Middle East and elsewhere, the rapid spread of Pentecostalism and other Christian missionary initiatives on many continents. We can discern the familiar signs of the Uranus-Neptune archetypal complex during this conjunction in the pervasiveness and intensity of contemporary Western interest in Buddhism, Sufism, Hinduism, and Taoism, in meditation and mysticism, in esoteric traditions and mythology, in Jungian and archetypal psychology, 
in transpersonal theory and consciousness research, in shamanism and indigenous traditions, in nature mysticism, in the convergence of science and spirituality, and in the emergence of holistic and participatory paradigms in virtually every field. Yet this era was an unusually fluid and complexly ambiguous one, both intellectually and spiritually. Essential to this era and precisely reflective of the Uranus-Neptune archetypal gestalt was the widespread sense that the collective Western consciousness had entered into a liminal state that was situated fundamentally between paradigms, unprecedentedly free-floating, uncertain, epistemologically and metaphysically untethered and confused, yet in its radically pluralistic flexibility, open to possibilities and realities not permitted in the arena of conventional collective discourse in earlier generations. In Europe, the entire period of the Uranus-Neptune alignment was dominated by the political and economic movement toward the establishment of the European community, which dissolved long-established national boundaries and societal structures in favor of a continent-wide community of freely circulating people, ideas, and goods. In all these contexts, the impulse toward unification and peace was closely associated with and catalyzed by the increasing dissolution of global barriers, Neptune, by the rapid spread of communication technologies, Uranus. The new impulses and developments in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe during the second half of the 1980s that were characteristic of the Uranus-Neptune complex did not arise smoothly, but rather precipitated considerable resistance and strife. Throughout just these years from 1985 to 1991, Saturn was in a rare triple conjunction with Uranus and Neptune, the only one of the 20th century. The tensions between the old order and the new, the various collapsing structures and destabilizations, and the increasing loss of faith in the communist dream, a collective shift of consciousness widely catalyzed by television broadcasts that crossed borders and revealed the reality of life beyond the Iron Curtain, all reflected themes typical of these planetary complexes and intricate tense interplay. The liberation not only of millions of people from the oppression of Soviet communism but of the collective consciousness of the international community from the imprisonment of the Cold War and its constant threat of nuclear apocalypse precisely coincided with the period of time of this multi-planet alignment. I think what Tarnas is saying here is very connected to one of the initial points that I raised in the first couple of episodes about the Uranus-Neptune conjunction of the early 1990s and how I see that as a significant activation point for that generation, I think that we have this challenging aspect in our charts, this challenging generational marker that links up and activates other parts of our chart and plays a real role in how our lives play out. And I think that for many of us in this generation, Maybe our lives don't exactly look like how we imagined they would. I think that we've lived through periods of extreme instability and also growing delusion, which those keywords really have Uranus-Neptune vibes. And I have this growing inkling that we're here to have a major impact on society and on human history. Similarly impactful to the Romantics, and the Enlightenment period, and the American Revolution, and things of that nature. It has a real revolutionary vibe, but also combined with vision. 
when we look back at history and human advancements and the advancements that have led to our current civilization as we know it, we can connect the cycles of Uranus and Neptune to those developments in human history. I am seeing patterns that are relevant to people who are alive right now, specifically that early 90s group, but not limited to that. I mean, check out, no matter what age you are, if you're alive right now, check out where Uranus and Neptune are in your birth chart, where Pluto is, and you'll get a sense of how you fit into the generational picture of the evolution that's happening at this time. Okay, I'm skipping around a lot throughout the chapter, and this next part really reminds me so much of the last like three or four years. This book came out in 2006, but the cycles that he's talking about, we have seen similar cycles playing out over the last three years and also latter activations of some of these cycles. So it's definitely really relevant to our current time. He's still talking about the 90s here, the 80s and 90s. Especially consequential were certain characteristics of the widespread evangelical Christian revival in the United States, which often took the political form of an unreflective reactionary conservatism. In its active mode, this revival aggressively asserted biblical values against those of a pluralistic secular society and sometimes combined this assertion with a messianic nationalism, especially catalyzed during the Saturn-Pluto alignments. In other instances, the evangelical impulse, much like certain streams in the New Age movement, was combined with an inward-turning withdrawal from active engagement with the complex challenges of modern life, and a willful ignorance of the ecological and economic realities of the international community. Especially suggestive of the Uranus-Neptune complex was the widespread belief in an imminent mass rapture that would result in the instant physical disappearance of Christian believers as they would be suddenly swept up into the celestial realm with Jesus, leaving behind a world that would descend into apocalyptic tribulation. More generally, an intensified psychological tendency towards escapism and denial, passivity and narcissism, credulity and delusion was widely in evidence, aided by a radically increased collective immersion in the artificial reality created by the mass media. These tendencies and pathologies reflect the shadow side of the Uranus-Neptune complex, as does the saturation of the collective consciousness by technologically produced hyper-stimulating images signifying nothing. I mean, he could totally be talking about right now. It's so fascinating how much history does repeat itself, but always innovating, iterating, it's never quite the same as it was the last time, and there's always unique challenges to face. I'm tempted to continue reading from this book because there are little nuggets of wisdom and gems of knowledge about this Uranus-Neptune conjunction and about the cycles that preceded it and the cycles that we're living through now and the ones to come that are so fascinating, but I'm going to resist that temptation for all of our sake and do my best to just paraphrase from here, really quickly zoom out on this, and a huge thank you to Richard Tarnas for writing this long-ass book with so much amazing references and timely citations and examples of what was going on in history. I mean, this is an incredibly researched book, and I feel like my sporadic little excerpting of it doesn't really do it justice, so definitely pick up a copy if you're interested in this kind of stuff at all. 
but he does such an interesting, amazing job of taking us through the last Uranus-Neptune conjunction, the one before that, the different points in the cycle where those two planets were relating harmoniously to one another, where there was tension, what kind of world events coincided with each, and then also brings in other important planets like Saturn and Pluto and discusses how they interact with the Uranian-Neptune cycle. And you end up with this really complex dynamic picture of the cycles of human history and something of an idea of where we're situated within it all. So paraphrasing as best I can this absolutely vast narrative, these spiritual revivals that took place in the latter part of the 20th century and are currently evolving and maturing and coming into a new authority after we see one full Saturn cycle has passed since that time. There's a really interesting connection here with Neptune, the planet of spirituality, and Uranus, the planet of innovation and invention, coming together to create kind of spiritual revolutions and the dawn of new forms of spirituality that can help guide humanity. And then we also see revolutions and the overthrow of governments, of oppressive governments specifically, in favor of ones that are more collaborative and ones that are decided by the people who have won their independence from the government that they've overthrown. So it's like spirituality and revolution and putting them together and tapping into that collective consciousness and becoming aware of what connects us and using that to revolutionize the systems that govern us and the systems of spirituality that we use to govern ourselves on an inner level and define our morality and our codes of conduct. And definitely in the modern cycles, we see a close relationship to technology with these placements because Uranus is the planet that rules Aquarius. Aquarius is the sign of technology and the sign of the people. And so technology becoming ubiquitous and being used by the people in service of connectivity, spirituality, and evolving in that type of a way as a society, all of that is so Uranus-Neptune. And it's just absolutely fascinating to me to try to conceptualize these cycles and zoom out and see how one thing leads to another with so many years in between. But by dipping into the collective consciousness unseen realm, we're able to borrow from each other and continue innovating and adapting each other's work. There's so, so much in here on it. I wish I could read you this whole book. But if you take one thing away from this, the time is right now to redefine our society and our government based on our evolving spiritual principles and based on our ability to tap into that collective unconscious and connect to the source material that's meant to be brought forth and integrated into that new way of doing things. And also that we are the vessels to do that. We are the people who are alive right now. We are the people who were born under this conjunction and it's our work to do. I feel like now that Pluto is in Aquarius and has been for a couple of months, we're really starting to see the dust settle on what this new age is truly about. And it's insane technological advancements and the dawn of super intelligence. 
AI is going to change society forever. And this is an extremely important transitional moment where how AI gets applied to our society and our society's future is being decided right now. And we have an opportunity to have a say in that and influence it in some way. And many of us have callings to do exactly that. And I want to quickly revisit the degree reading for Capricorn 19, which was the first degree that the Uranus-Neptune conjunction of 1993 perfected at, so the place where they officially conjoined. And I want to think about this degree reading in the context of AI and our current moment. A half-eaten piece of bread. Utilitarian considerations observing the self through objectified eyes, conditioning and programming, talking self and others into following the program, astute wheeler-dealer, you're not there in it, picturing it as though it were something brutally obvious and commonplace, decadence, barbarian tendencies, sympathies with the consciousness of problems and issues, difficulties and struggles all pervasive, never content, always aware of what is not happening, the bitter perspective and relentless repetition of the litany of gloom and doom. Yeah, I mean, in this current moment, we really need to consider how we're programming the super intelligence that we are creating right now and how we're going to implement and employ that technology in service of humanity so that it doesn't become the fearsome threat that so many of us are afraid that it will be. You can't stop the progress of time. This technology is an inevitable development that we have been working toward for a long time. And now it's here. And it's time to raise this baby and raise it well so that it grows up to be of service to humanity and has a positive life outcome. Because the AI will outlive us all. This super intelligence will be a defining feature of coming generations and coming iterations of our society. So we need to be responsible here and consider the future and think about how we can get involved. We're the ones who are meant to define this. You know, we can't just leave it up to the tech overlords and leave it up to the government, okay? It's us, the people who are here now, who are in touch with what it means to be alive and what it means to be living out the human experience. Don't let the vampires suck the soul out of this potential new life. And I think there's something interesting there. I don't quite have my thoughts totally formulated, but on the topic of those tech vampires and how they're sucking young blood and infusing it into themselves in order to stay young and virile for as long as possible and extend their lives past the human lifespan, right, as we live through the dawn of transhumanism, how will AI connect with that? You know, I think for a long time we've joked about uploading our consciousness to the cloud, but now there's really a very real implementation for that, where we can train AI on our own thoughts and ideas and knowledge, and that will provide the foundation for the future. So I think Eli said this in our conversation when he joined the podcast, that everyone who's posting online right now and having their data scraped and, you know, the information that they're sharing online being used to train AI, in a way it is a form of immortalization. Or maybe more accurately, a form of integration with coming generations that we won't be around to experience. 
You know, there is a similarity to something like the American Revolution, where the founding fathers developed this new democracy, and we're all living in it now, and it has such a huge impact on our lives, and none of those people ever dreamed of any of us, you know? It's 300 years later, the United States has experienced its Pluto return, we're a whole new collection of beings living in the shadow left by these great men born at an important time when the sands of time were shifting and change was in the air. And we're living through another one of those times right now. So think about how do you fit into this and how do you want to participate? Because there's no reason to be left behind. No matter who you are, what your status is, what your job is, you have a divine birthright and a connection to what's happening now, and there's a role for you. And if you're not sure what it is, book a reading with me because it is my specialty and I would be happy to look at your chart and have a conversation with you about what that role might be. You can book with me anytime at metroastrology.com. I have a lot of different price points, different length readings, so no matter what your means, you should be able to find something that works for you and we can connect about this and talk on a one-on-one -on -one level about you. Okay. We're reading from a lot of different books today. So this next book I'm going to read from is a really cool one that I found at a used bookshop in Ojai, and it's called Healing Visualizations, Creating Health Through Imagery. It's by Gerald Epstein, MD, and it's about the power that the mind has to determine our physical well-being and to influence our overall health. This is something that I really believe in, that I spoke to in previous episodes. My mental visualizations helped me to change my body and achieve the picture of health that I had in my mind. And that image is now evolving and expanding. Once I reached my first health goal, I was inspired to make a new one. And so the journey doesn't end. But I have learned that the mind has immense power to impact the physical body and the physical plane in general. And so with this book, I recommend to just take what you will. That's what I do at least. But I like it. There's a kind of simplicity here and an audacity that I appreciate. The author, Gerald Epstein, describes this book as being the result of more than 15 years of successful clinical practice using the vast imaginal powers of the mind to heal both physical and emotional disorders and to chart a course of health and heightened well-being. So I resonate with that premise, and I resonate with a lot of what Epstein says. He talks about a concept called body-mind, which is the connection of mind and body. And he says that most doctors and scientists do not regard the body and mind as one unit. And from the mid-17th century on, science has treated the physical body as an autonomous entity having little or nothing to do with the mind or the emotions. To oversimplify, medical doctors say that only the body exists. Psychologists say emotions exist, but they see no integral connection between the emotions and the physical substance of the body. And reading that, I feel pretty sure that doctors believe that the mind and emotions exist. But I do see what he means about how in that field and in that practice, they operate as though the mind and the body are not integrally connected. 
But he continues, and it is interesting. In the process of intellectually splitting the body from the mind, each has been broken down into tinier and tinier units so that rigid medical specialties have sprung up to deal with disorders of the ear, foot, brain, psyche, and so on. In reality, there has never been a mind-body split, nor can there ever be. Body and mind are two aspects of the same human experience. The body is quantitative, the mind is qualitative. Thus, even if a clinician cannot locate a physical disturbance to explain your physical complaint, and says to you, it's all in your mind, there is still a physical event going on. If it is in your mind, it is in your body too. They are analogies of each other. The perspective of body-mind enables us to see that physical symptoms are a reflection, a mirroring of emotional issues. The physical symptoms are directly connected to the emotions. That is, the body is both physical and emotional. These two components are as two sides of a coin, inseparable, although one may be hidden from our sight while the other visibly manifests itself. To view the physical and the emotional as operating together can be enormously beneficial to you, because the more that is disclosed to you about yourself, physical or emotional, the more control you have over yourself. And this is very consistent with my experience. I almost made this final episode an honest recap of my Saturn return, but at the last second, I chickened out because it's personal and embarrassing and vulnerable, and I just don't think I'm ready. I do want to share that story at some point, but I just don't think I'm ready to do it in an honest way now, so I'm just going to skip it for now, and maybe we'll get to that in season two. But this passage does make me think about my Saturn return and how really crucial aspects of myself and my social behaviors and my cognitive and perceptual abilities on a fundamental level, revelations occurred during my Saturn return. And having that additional information about myself ended up being the thing that allowed me to take control over my life, which had completely spun off the rails. I can't say where I would be if I didn't have those revelations about myself and didn't get this crucial information about who I am and how I'm operating in the world. Self-awareness is such a gift, and it's really only one that you can give to yourself by working for it and being open to it and being brave enough to deal with the inevitable pain period that comes with being slapped in the face with an image of yourself that isn't perfect and makes you flawed, vulnerable, and unique. We all have challenges in life. None of us are born knowing anything about what's going on. None of us know how to interact with each other. We all have to learn and be taught, and we make mistakes. And if you can look at your mistakes honestly and assess them and learn from them and make different choices based on that assessment, you're winning. That's real growth. That's healing, you know? Like that it's generative, like growth and healing are. There's something really pure and vibrant and fundamentally life giving about that process. And it is painful, you know, like birth is and like growing is. Like all of these good things come with discomfort and even with pain, but it's temporary and ultimately that pain and that discomfort turns into strength and ability and competence. So let's not shy away from these difficult processes. 
because that's really why we're here. So I do want to give you guys an example of the healing visualizations that Gerald Epstein recommends. And I was trying to think of which one would be the most useful for everybody. And I think that we should do his visualization to heal addiction because I feel like probably all of us have some vice that we're leaning on that we would be better off if we cut out of our lives or we know somebody who deals with addiction. It's kind of, I feel, unfortunately close to a universal issue that touches everyone's lives. So I'm going to read what he recommends to do to mentally visualize yourself breaking free of addiction and, you know, feel free to use it or not use it as you choose. And I think I'd also like to read a little bit of the depression exercises for healing your depression because that's relevant for me and if it can help any of you, I definitely want to share that. These are really, really simple exercises. When you hear me read them, you might laugh, you might just toss them aside as silly nonsense and that's all totally fine, but since they're so simple, it really doesn't hurt to give them a shot. So if you feel like having a silly little time, having fun healing yourself, then sit down and try one of these exercises and see what it does for your life. So before I get into the exercises themselves, I need to give you a little bit of background information from the book, just so that you are definitely making the most of the technique, understanding it, and implementing it well. From the Healing Visualizations book, what is mental imagery? Simply put, it is the mind thinking in pictures. There are numerous ways we can think. Most familiar to us is logical thought. Since the 17th century, this type of thinking has been giving precedence over all others because it is the basis of science. However, there are other forms of thinking, non-logical, intuitive forms, which coexist with logical thought. Consider when you have a flash of insight, when suddenly you see a new way to do something, have a new understanding, or find a solution to a problem that seemed to have no answer. This kind of thought is called intuition. Without intuition, we would not be able to think of anything new. Mental imagery, like intuition, is a type of non-logical thinking. Logical discursive thinking is used for making contact with people in the everyday world and with what can be called objective reality. Mental imagery is the thinking used for making contact with our inner subjective reality. My experience as a clinician asking his patients to peer into their inner lives has shown me that images form this structure of inner life. The language of images is most commonly experienced as night dreams or daydreams. Anyone familiar with imagery learns almost immediately that we can work with this language as easily as we can work with spoken language. Indeed, the ability to understand and communicate in the language of images probably precedes the ability to communicate with words. Becoming aware of the language of images essentially requires only that we turn our attention to it. Epstein later continues, Imaging, doing imagery, is a simple process. It means finding, discovering, or creating a mental picture, a mental form. This imagined but still real form has all the characteristics of any event, thing, or situation that we might see in everyday waking reality. The difference is that, unlike objects perceived when awake, they have no volume or mass. In short, they have no substance. 
yet they do have energy. We might think of these images as our mental children. We give birth to them to act on our behalf as agents of healing. Then, with the energy they possess, they continue to stimulate the healing process on their own. In discovering or creating these images, we are engaged in a meaningful process. The images are as real as our emotions and as meaningful as our night dreams. Obviously, what we create is a subjective reality, but it is a reality nonetheless, with the power to affect our bodies and tell us more about who we are. Okay, and then he describes how we can prepare our minds to do imagery and bring our inner reality to bear on our health. He says there's nothing very complicated in this. We use ordinary capacities available to us all. Epstein says that it's very important to prepare the mind for imaginal healing by first setting an intention, a clear direction of your will, and then quieting the mind by finding a peaceful place where you can be alone to really focus in a meditative way on the exercise. He recommends that imagery exercises be performed three times a day, before breakfast, at twilight, and before bed for best results, and that imaginal healing should be done from a state of relaxation, but not quite a dissociative or hypnotic kind of relaxation, not a deep meditation, but just clearing your mind so that you can have supreme focus on this one exercise that you're performing. Purifying and cleansing your mind, space, and body is beneficial before these exercises. When they're performed from a state of inner and outer cleanliness, they have better effect. And then I want to read directly from the book again here because there's one more recommendation that he makes that I find really interesting in order to prepare yourself to have the best outcome from this type of work. You need to open yourself up to the inevitable flow of change. Epstein says, Modern quantum physicists and Chinese mystics both have said that what we subjectively experience as time, our limited picture of reality, is actually the continuous flow of change. The entire traditional Chinese medical system is, in fact, based on the premise that illness is synonymous with blockages of flow, in other words, with resistance to the changing nature of things. We try to hold on to what we think of as good situations, and in our holding we tighten up, resist the possibility of pain or non-pleasure, and so run head-on into the very pain we are trying to avoid. It is logical that the act of holding on to something impermanent, pretending that it is permanent, must lead to trouble. Most often, the form the trouble takes is a physical ailment. Everyone I know who has worked with imagery reports that feeling better comes with letting go of things, ideas, preconceptions about themselves or others, with dropping their effort to stop the flow of life's events. They don't become fatalists and passively sit by the river, saying what will be will be. Rather, they actively let go of the desperation involved in identifying themselves with fixed, limited experiences, things, and situations. As the process of letting go deepens, so does the sense of well-being. Imagery and flowing with the process of change are inextricably linked. This may be due to a function of the left-right brain phenomenon, the fact that the right brain seems connected with intuition and picture-making, while the left brain seems connected with functions of logic, words, and rational thought, giving free rein to the imagination, to a-causal pictures rather than to sequential word-thinking, enables us to yield to the flow of things. 
When we restore the imagination to its place of equality with logical thinking, we open ourselves to change and renewal. We give ourselves a chance to enjoy the constant succession of now moments as they unfold. And he does say that these exercises are by no means a replacement for seeing a doctor for any type of malady or physical illness that you may have, but that these imaginal exercises can be a form of self-care and taking care of one's own health and becoming a healer to oneself. And that these exercises are meant to be creatively inspirational to people to step up and become their own healer and take charge of their own well-being. He says these aren't cures, they're more like for caring for yourself. Okay, so let's do one of the exercises. The first step is to set an intention. So I'm going to read these exercises. I'm going to do one that's focused on addiction and one that's focused on depression. So you can pick or choose or or if you're really creative, come up with your own visualization exercise for whatever ailment you would like to address. Because I don't think that there's anything particularly magical about any of these exercises that Epstein has come up with. It's just the creativity that he's applied to these common ailments and common problems and recommendations that he makes for ways of visually healing those kinds of things. So if you're feeling like you don't resonate or like you totally do resonate and you get this and you can create your own, go on and do it. You definitely can. The name of this exercise for curing addiction is liberating by re-experiencing. It's recommended to work on only one addiction at a time if you have more than one and to do this exercise three times a day for up to three minutes for the full series, there's eight parts, for three cycles of 21 days of use and seven days off. So this is ultimately a 12-week program of doing this specific imaginal exercise to help heal the root of your addiction. And about this exercise, he says, we are creatures of habit, Addictions are habits carried to an extreme. They represent a loss of voluntary control over habit to a degree that is greater than most of us ordinarily experience. Addictions are characterized by intense cravings. Although almost everything we encounter in life can be addictive, some substances and activities seem to have more power than others to sap our will and demonstrably are more immediately destructive. There is no need to enumerate them here, for addictive behaviors are well known to everyone. All types of addiction can be helped by imagery. Generally speaking, the most significant sensation or emotion associated with addictive craving is pain, mental or physical. If one's pain threshold is low, his or her addiction level tends to be high. Those who have a high pain threshold can inadvertently become addicted because an increasingly greater amount of a substance is necessary to quell their pain a situation that can promote drug dependence. This set of eight interrelated exercises is designed to cut addictive tendencies and can be used along with any other addiction recovery program in which you may be engaged. The exercises are called Liberating by Re-Experiencing after Arthur Yanov's work described in The Primal Scream and other books. When you give your intention for this exercise, you should of course specify your addiction. Generally speaking, it takes 21 days to break a habit and to instill a new one. 
If you feel craving during the seven days that you are not using imagery, do some stopping exercise. Simply stop a habitual activity for a brief time. Wait a moment before turning on a light switch or picking up the telephone. Take another route to work. Eat something different for breakfast. The more dedicated your practice of these exercises, the more profound will be the results. Without further ado, here's the exercise. Remember, you'll have set your intention, cleaned your space and your body and your mind, relaxed your mind, and opened yourself up to the inevitable flow of change. And you'll be sitting upright in a chair with your feet planted firmly on the floor, breathing in such a way that your exhales are longer than your inhales. Liberating by re-experiencing. One, close your eyes. Breathe out three times. Feel and sense yourself as a child being left cold often or for a long time. Breathe out once. Feel and sense yourself as a child being left hungry for a long time. Breathe out once. Feel and sense yourself as a child being left alone a long time. Open your eyes. Two, close your eyes. Breathe out once. Feel and sense yourself as a child frustrated by lack of other basic needs. Open your eyes. Three, close your eyes. Breathe out three times. Feel and live yourself as a child watching fearful confrontations. Open your eyes. Four, close your eyes. Breathe out three times. Feel and sense what has resulted in your life from the numbing of these childhood pains. Open your eyes. Five, close your eyes. Breathe out three times. Remove the cloak of pain. Open your eyes. Six, close your eyes. Breathe out three times. Feel and sense that wherever there is blocked pain, we also block pleasure. Open your eyes. Seven, close your eyes. Breathe out once. Feel and sense what it's like to live without repression. Open your eyes. Eight, close your eyes. Breathe out once. Sense the new quality of joy and excitement that comes from not holding back the primal pain. Open your eyes. For healing depression, he actually includes many different exercises for the different flavors and causes of depressed states. And what he says about depression generally is depression in its various forms, grief, mourning, melancholy, sadness, brooding, moodiness, and the like, is clearly the world's most ubiquitously experienced chronic emotional disorder. In a large number of cases, these various forms are directly related to loss and or to self-directed anger. Most of us lose something every day. A person, an ideal, a thing, a plan, a dream of success, a hope. Depending on the degree and intensity of the loss, many of us react with one of the states mentioned above, such as grief or mourning. If this state persists for an inordinately long time, certainly more than three months, and functioning begins to diminish, along with appetite, sleep, interest in life, and sexual drive, then we are facing full-blown depression. There are a great many other tendencies or symptoms that we might see expressed. This is why I present here a varied array of exercises. You are likely to find one or more of them useful. The ubiquity of depressed states underscores the universality of loss. Almost no one is exempt from the experience of depression. It is the forerunner of dying and death and requires our utmost attention and concern. From my point of view, nothing on earth demands our attention more. 
since at some point everyone has this experience. Paradoxically, this universal experience has to be met with equanimity, not with consternation. Loss, as it affects us all, represents the continual chance for us to come to terms with the frailty of physical life. So, I'm not going to read all of the exercises, but I will read the three that I find the most compelling, and I'll read them from longest to shortest. And reminding you one final time, if you do perform this healing exercise, best results will be achieved if you cleanse your mind, body, and space, relax your mind, set a clear intention, and open yourself up to the inevitability of change. You'll do this sitting upright in a chair with your feet planted firmly on the ground, and you'll breathe in a way so that your exhales are longer than your inhales. This exercise is called the drop of hope. Close your eyes. Breathe out three times and see yourself holding a glass of clear, pure water. See what happens when a drop of black ink suddenly falls into the water. See and hear the descent of the drop of ink and the rhythm and ripple patterns of the water. Hear what the water is saying to you when it has been hurt or disturbed by the black drop. What are you feeling? Live these feelings deeply by allowing them to fill you. Then wash yourself out by drinking a glass of clear, pure water. Open your eyes, knowing that the despair has lifted. So simple. This next one I find oddly compelling. It's called sailing out of the doldrums for depression connected with being in the doldrums, which if you don't know that expression, it means a spell of listlessness or a despondency, basically a pervasive feeling of ennui where you just can't find the motivation to do anything and it comes from a nautical term that refers to a band around the earth near the equator where sailing ships sometimes get stuck on windless waters so in a literal sense it means getting stuck somewhere unable to move so this exercise sailing out of the doldrums is for getting out of that place when you find yourself there You have heard the saying, I'm in the doldrums, meaning that one is feeling blue, sad, or morose. If you experience this malady, then from an imagery point of view, you are in luck, because the doldrums do exist. They are located in the Indian Ocean off the coast of Africa, an area of low activity where there is essentially no wind or any other kind of turbulence. Now that you know where you are, you can leave. Close your eyes and breathe out three times and see yourself sailing in the doldrums, You are the master of your boat. Know that when you have guided your boat out of the doldrums, you will feel well. See, feel, and sense how you find your way. Then open your eyes. I love that one because it's so simple, but it just feels like somebody putting the control in your hand, putting your hand on the steering wheel, putting you back in the driver's seat. Yeah, it makes sense to me. The doldrums is a real place, so you don't even really have to do that much imagining. Okay, the final one is my favorite though, because before I had ever gotten this book, I used to do this just intuitively. I did this a lot while I was overcoming my depression this final time, this final and most successful time that I've done it. And it's so, so simple. In a drawing pad, using a pencil, draw spirals from inside going out any number of times with the intention of giving yourself energy. That's it. Draw spirals, start at the center, make them as big as you want, and just get in touch with that fundamental shape 
and imagine it just energizing you. I swear that one works. I can't attest to the other ones because I haven't actually done them with the amount of routine and diligence that is required to really see results. But that last one, Spiral of Energy, I can attest to. And I have a good feeling about the other ones. So if you do try any of them out, I'd love to hear from you. I've been experimenting a lot with this kind of stuff and this kind of self-help, self-healing modalities. Anything I can get my hands on to just put myself back in the driver's seat of my own well-being, I'm into. So this stuff works for me. I mean, I told you guys about my nose and my body and my body image and my weight gain and all that kind of stuff. So I've told you some things that I've used mental imaging for, but I've definitely leaned on that more and more as I get older. And I really believe in the power of positive thinking and the power of your mind to heal real physical ailments. And I also believe in getting to the root of things. I'm not a big medication person, not just for mental health, but also for physical things. Not a big doctor person in general. If possible, I'll always diagnose and treat myself, and I do have really good results from that. Maybe not the most popular thing to say, but I'm just being real with you all. It's hard to access good healthcare. It's really hard to have a doctor actually spend time and thought on you, especially when you look healthy on the outside. Like a doctor will just, you know, wave you in and wave you out and collect the insurance money. And, you know, I feel they're just doing their job and they've got lots of clients. And I'm sure that compared to other clients that they might see, Someone like me looks really healthy and looks like I don't need to monopolize a lot of their time. But at the same time, where does that really leave me in terms of wanting to optimize my own health and longevity in natural preventative ways? You know, I feel like the system that I exist in, insofar as healthcare, both physical and mental, it really encourages you to just get sick and then seek medication. So... I know that the doctors that I currently have relationships with would be happy to treat me if I came in presenting illness, but there's not really the same energy for helping me prevent that illness. I really think that preventative measures are the most effective, and so for myself, I have made a huge effort to take control over that kind of stuff. and. I'm actually really excited personally for AI developments in terms of diagnostics and things like using ChatGPT to help Google your ailments because recently it's become so difficult to find accurate, trustworthy information on the web that's not just crazy fear-mongering or like the most extreme possible recommendations, but just to kind of find sensible information that's like relevant to what a real person might be going through. I've been having to turn to places like Reddit, which feels totally insane, like for medical info, because when you type your query into Google, you get these sites like Mayo Clinic and like Johns Hopkins, and it's like just insane fear-mongering that really like gatekeeps and withholds essential basic information that should be like common decency, common use. Like we're all humans with bodies that 
get infections and stuff like that. And it's like you'll be Googling your infection and they're gatekeeping the information from you while simultaneously telling you that you have an emergency critical infection that requires you to like go to urgent care. And it's just silly and like so you'll go to urgent care and they'll give you antibiotics which will completely fuck up your gut biome and leave you wide open to a whole array of other illnesses that they'll be happy to treat you for when you inevitably come down with them. So I just don't vibe with that. I don't know, in that area of my life, I've become a little bit of a cowboy and I'm really excited to just see what this cutting edge AI can do in terms of diagnostics and helping me make more accurate assessments about my own mental and physical health and coming up with my own holistic treatment plans that deal with the root and don't just treat symptoms with pharmaceuticals that cause side effects that are diseases in their own right. So that was a little bit of a tangent, but I mean, I do feel like the age we're living in is a technological and cultural renaissance. It remains to be seen whether that will be for better or for worse. But I hope that we can continue having these kinds of conversations that are outside of the box and involve the symbolic and the imaginal and connect the physical plane with the mental and the astral and see what we can create because we're such powerful beings, even in this society. Even with everything that we have going on that limits us in all of these ways, we have so much creative power and creative potential and the time is ripe. The time is right to use it. And I want to read from one final book, one final note to leave you guys on. The book is Cosmic Weather Report, Notes from the Edge of the Universe by Mark Borax and Elias Lonsdale. And this book talks about the shift from the age of Pisces to the age of Aquarius and says, the key feature of this era is the liberation of human consciousness from false thought forms into heart-centered awareness. Instead of giving our power to institutions like king and court or church and state, or I might add corporation, instead of draining our life force into the world machine, we're heading toward the flourishing of human potential on a mass scale and the awakening of mainstream consciousness. The revolution that surged through the 60s when we first began to hear of the age of Aquarius is moving again in an updated form, with most of the rough-edged hysteria of that earlier time trimmed off. The new revolution is less based on a primal urge to rebel and more based on the need to see we're all in it together. It's less us versus them and more about the whole human organism taking a giant step forward. More of a wisdom element comes into play because despite the way society looks, we've actually learned a few things since then. Right, the human organism taking a giant step forward, a wisdom element, teaching and training the AI and loading up as much human wisdom as we've accumulated into this artificial intelligence that has the potential to take our species to the next level. Yeah, the time is now, y'all. Elias says something else interesting about the shift from Pisces to Aquarius. In earlier epochs, we were lighter, star-filled, more informed by cosmos, but had not yet become physicalized by full Earth embodiment. We hadn't anchored. For that, we needed ego and karma and history and all the dark stuff at the bottom that's been bringing us down. At this point, we're like deep-sea creatures, bulbous-eyed critters warped by fabulous pressures of the deep, who can only see in the dark. 
We've been swimming through this fish soup in a very codependent fashion. We've gotten absorbed in intense emotional patterns and karmic syndromes very hard to separate out of, very hard to even see that we're in. We've lacked perspective, air, and breath. It's been claustrophobic and suffocating down here, especially in the final years of the plunge. However, even though we've been thrown together, we've also been very alone in mental isolation. We've been entrenched in self-referential self-talk, trapped in separative ego. This is the great paradox of our time, that we've become completely enmeshed while pretending to have nothing to do with each other. Almost all the ways we've been connecting in the age of the fishes are guaranteed to create antisocial beings who really want nothing to do with each other. But it's all changing now. The difference between the water of Pisces that we've been in and the liquid of Aquarius that we're about to enter is that Aquarius is airy, not watery. Aquarius has space. Aquarius has frothy bubbles and breath and light and air and scope and perspective, rather than the density and opaqueness of layer after layer of concretized karma. Aquarius brings expansion after compression. We're about to emerge from the pressure of the ages and discover we can breathe again. We are going to become synchronized with ourselves and each other through a higher awareness that links us with the living universe. Aquarius fosters the process of cleansing the mind of false thought, which is isolated thought split off from the wisdom of the heart. Instead of being enmeshed in a psychic net of swollen unconscious emotion, we're going to develop a healthy energy field of space around the self. We're going to discover who we are together and alone without blocking the free expression of the other. We'll have more room to move, which we won't need to buy at the expense of pushing anyone away because we gain it by expanding into the multidimensional awareness that connects us with all things. We won't need to make such a fuss of our independence and relationships. With both Piscean and Aquarian forms of connection vying for attention in the last 40 years, relationship has become quite an issue. That's because we're seeking to create a form of union with equal parts independence and merging and have been tipping the balance back and forth to either side until we get the hang of it. Okay, and that kind of brings me pretty neatly to the final point that I wanted to discuss with you today, which is the upcoming Venus retrograde happening this summer uh, from July until September. This is the one transit that I can't forgive myself for not mentioning to you before I sign off for my summer hiatus. It's like a bad time for me to take a break, honestly, but this is just what we have to do, and if I need to pop in for an emergency meeting this summer, I will. But we have a Venus retrograde to look forward to this summer happening in Leo, and personally, Venus retrograde is my least favorite transit. That's saying a lot. I lived through the same Saturn, Pluto, and Jupiter conjunctions that y'all did in 2020, and Venus retrograde, to me, hurts more. When Venus retrogrades, our relationships are up for review, and pain points that you have with relating to the people in your life become more painful, and you're forced to work them out or deal with the consequences. So I have such trauma from past Venus retrogrades that now as an astrologer when they're coming I know like I'm just gonna hunker down I'm not starting conflict with anyone I'm not gonna discuss my true feelings or anything that comes up for me with the person because I know that it will not go well it's not a time when 
that kind of communication is effective or well-received. And it's a time when relationships can go haywire because problems feel bigger and more insurmountable than usual. And we lack the grace that Venus normally provides to us to kind of coat the medicine that we might need to take or feed someone else in sugar. So we're just pouring down like Ipecac, you know? That's a weird metaphor, but in my experience, Venus retrograde has been a time when I've had friendships and relationships just totally dissolve over what was honestly a small misunderstanding that just ballooned out of proportion and kind of snowballed and picked up a lot of other like dirt, rocks, and sticks on its way down to the bottom. And it's hard to recover from that kind of experience. So my number one recommendation to you this summer is to be easy and have grace towards yourself and others and really consider if confronting someone about an issue that you have with them is truly necessary and vital to you in this moment or if it could maybe wait until after September because you might even feel differently in September. Sometimes the things that have come up for me that have been really problematic during Venus retrogrades weren't problems that lasted more than a few weeks. So they felt crazy, insurmountable, and huge in the moment, but ultimately it was a complete illusion and the problem itself was small to non-existent or just a plain misunderstanding that then kind of grew into something monstrous and more real. So don't feed your worst impulses during this time. Understand that Venus is not operating at full power and really is not operating with any power at all and is pointing out to you things that you might truly value that aren't being prioritized by you, for example. So maybe ways that certain relationships that you have are out of alignment or that you're kind of deluding yourself into thinking that you're okay with this type of relationship or that the fact that this relationship lacks this thing is fine. Anyway, different kind of compromises that we make as we make them day in and day out. Sometimes they add up to something that no longer works and the Venus retrograde period kind of takes us through a review of all of our relationships and all of those things and brings it front and center so that you can't ignore it anymore. But just because we're becoming aware of these things doesn't mean that we need to act on them. And the best thing that we can do is honestly journal about it in a secret little diary that you don't show anyone and then read those entries back in September after the Venus retrograde has passed. And then you can evaluate and see, do I want to take action on any of these points? Does any of this require my participation to alter or change in the way that is indicated for me? Sorry, I'm, I'm like getting stressed even telling you guys about this, but patience, grace, all of the virtues that Venus endows us with, we're going to need to really find our inner reserves and stores of those and call them up and just try to be the bigger person every day from July until September. And this too shall pass. One more note you might remember, you probably won't, but if you do remember, you've got a steel trap mind and I respect it. Venus retrograde is not a good time to have any type of cosmetic procedure or surgery. It's not a good time for that. You're going to want to wait until after September 
if you have something scheduled from mid-July to early September that's a cosmetic surgery, I really recommend if there's any way to change it, change it. Otherwise, understand that you're going to need to prioritize healing and maybe even use some of these mental visualization exercises to counteract the effect of the Venus retrograde, which will be taking some of the natural luck and beauty that would be otherwise potentially applied to that surgery. And this also means like any med spa treatments, anybody getting Botox or fillers, even a haircut, some astrologers will say, don't do it during Venus retrograde. It's just not going to look as good. The results aren't going to be as optimal as if you were just able to wait. So that's my piece. I have to say it just for my own peace of mind. And again, just as a reminder, if you think I'm sounding too crazy on this episode, I don't think that the planets cause anything to happen. It's like, I don't think that Venus would be causing your surgery to go poorly or causing you to have a fight with your friend, but that in the great divine cosmic clock that astrology is, it's time for that type of energy and time for corrective lessons in that space. So that's the warning. These kinds of corrections and delays and critical review are all things that we associate with a retrograde. It's happening for Venus, planet of beauty, love, and finances. Okay, also not a good time for investments. Okay, and this is not financial advice, but I understand that it's not a good time to make new investments during a Venus retrograde because our perceptions are pretty off. And there's also a tendency for assets and investments to be overvalued or overinflated in a way that is not sustainable and will be corrected after the Venus retrograde ends. So yeah, the main keyword is really perceptions being off. So just understand that you're going to see different sides of things, different potentials, different deficits things that are lacking, things that have potential to appreciate in the future, but it's not a good time to take action during a Venus retrograde. It's a good time to observe and try to collect information and use it to enhance your perspective of the landscape, but wait to take action on things related to your relationships, your friendships, partnerships, or financial decisions until after September 3rd when Venus stations direct. And the dates for this retrograde I almost forgot to give you are from July 22nd until September 3rd. And this Venus retrograde is happening in Leo, which is the sign that has to do with our self-expression, our creativity, our inner light, and how we shine and beam that out to other people. And Leo is also a prideful and vain sign, so be careful out there because I feel like this Venus retrograde will be a little bit more about visibility and optics. And also because it's in Leo, that means that it's opposing Aquarius. It doesn't oppose Pluto for long or in a very tight orb, but there is a loose opposition that will happen during this time. So I do think that the events that end up being correlated to this Venus retrograde will be pretty informative for how we're meant to be relating to one another in this new Aquarian paradigm that I keep talking about. And what Lonsdale says about the Piscean and Aquarian forms of connection vying for attention 
relationships becoming an issue because we're seeking to create forms of union with equal parts, independence, and merging, and have been tipping the balance back and forth to either side until we get the hang of it. I feel like this Venus retrograde is really connected to that process and helping us to see how we need to show up and be seen and be perceived by the people that we have existing relationships with and by the people that we will develop relationships with in the future. What needs to change about the way that we're showing up, the character that we're bringing to the table that can help us to facilitate this new, more Aquarian way of relating to one another, which is less bound by concretized karma and is more free to imagine new ways of creating and relating and building with one another to co-create the coming moment. One final quote, and I mean it this time, from, of course, Elias Lonsdale. Physical reality is permeated through and through with etheric currents. Internal and external realms commingle through the living ethers, through the inner nature of fire and light, through the etheric composition of thoughts and color and music, through the intersection of our energy bodies with the energy body of the planet, through the living presence of stars and mountains and all things in the physical life realms, what's inside and out mingle through the living ethers. Things like dreams and music and ideas are far more substantial than you'd think because they link us to the source realm that gives birth to all matter. Each time you draw forth from the deep well of your creativity, you co-create the universe. You set forces in motion that are the latter-day equivalent of stars and planets. The power of etheric currents like thought and music and creativity to heal and uplift occurs because these things encapsulate the essence of the whole human journey. The best way to track the etheric is to explore how you're always bringing yourself to a world which is always bringing itself to you. Give yourself the great benefit of the doubt that the crazy dream in your heart may be less crazy than you think. Learn to cherish what you see and sense and think and feel more than what so-called experts say. Thank you for listening to Hail Saturn. I appreciate you for being here. I'll be back. In the meantime, I hope you have a wonderful summer. I wish you health, wealth, and happiness. And I hope you make progress building your own earthly paradise this summer, even if it's just in your mind. Bye for now, and I'll talk to you soon.